Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Tiffany Meyer and here are today's top stories. Former President Trump pleads not guilty in his fourth indictment and the Georgia governor doesn't want to investigate the district attorney. Find out what Trump's now requesting. One of the longest sentences handed down so far over the January 6th Capitol breach. A former organizer of Proud Boys gets 17 years in prison and his co-defendant gets 15 years. Florida's recovery effort needs a lot of money. That's what President Biden says as communities start to rebuild after Hurricane Dahlia, and he prepares to head to the Sunshine State. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas discloses what his billionaire friend paid for. Find out what's in his first report after the rules changed and what he has to say. A newly surfaced video online purports to show the Russian Wagner Group leader just days before his reported death in a fiery plane crash. And over 70 people are dead after fire tears through a rundown building in South Africa's biggest city. Most of the victims are homeless who were living in the building. One of the longest sentences handed down so far over the January 6th Capitol breach. Former organizer of Proud Boys, Joseph Biggs, gets 17 years in prison. Federal prosecutors were seeking a 33-year sentence on January 6, 2021. Biggs helped lead dozens of Proud Boys members and associates in marching to the Capitol. A jury in Washington, D.C. convicted him of several charges, including seditious conspiracy. The federal judge today also sentenced another Proud Boys member, Zachary Real, to 15 years in prison. The sentence for Biggs is the second longest among all January 6th defendants, after the 18-year prison sentence for Oath Keepers founder Stuart Rhodes. The national leader of Proud Boys, Enrique Terrio, is set to be sentenced next Tuesday. President Biden will travel to Florida this weekend as the state begins its long recovery from Hurricane Idalia. But tensions are growing in Congress over additional funding for FEMA. Joining us now live is NTD's White House correspondent, Iris Tao. Good evening, Iris. Tell us a bit more about the president's message. What did he pledge to do today? Good evening to you. So President Biden today says he's going to travel to Florida on Saturday morning to see firsthand the damage caused by Hurricane Adelia. And today he also vowed to provide long-term support for the Sunshine State as Florida begins its long recovery process. Here's what he said when, when visiting the FEMA headquarters in D.C. earlier today. Watch. And some of this is going to take months and years to make sure we restore the the people to the circumstances there before this disaster hit. And to the people of Florida and throughout the Southeast, uh, I'm here to make clear that our nation has your back and we are not going to, we're, we're not going to walk away. We're not going to give up. We're not going to slow down. And this morning, President Biden approved a disaster declaration request from Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, which will enable the Florida governor to employ federal funds to help the communities impacted by the hurricane. But that's also as concerns are mounting after the FEMA administrator warned that the agency could soon run out of money without additional funding from Congress. So President Biden, as well as White House officials today, called on Congress to act. Watch. Every American expects FEMA 
will show up. And when they're in the middle of a disaster and I'm calling on Congress to make sure you're able and have the funds to be able to continue to show up. That fund has been depleted. We have requested $12 billion because we know that every American expects FEMA to be there. The Republicans are pushing back because the White House, in its funding request for Congress, impaired up additional funding for FEMA with additional funding for Ukraine. So next week, when the Senate comes back, Republican Senator Rick Scott from Florida says that he's going to introduce new legislation to ensure that disaster relief funds are fully funded to help Americans get through the hurricane, and then as well as it's not going to be linked with additional funding for Ukraine. Back to you. Iris, thank you for that update. The federal judge overseeing Hunter Biden's botched plea deal wants an update from the attorneys in the case. According to an order, the judge has asked attorneys to provide her an update by Wednesday of next week. She also asked what steps they believe she needs to take. Earlier this month, the judge dismissed misdemeanor tax charges against the president's son after the plea deal fell apart. Those charges were for failing to pay taxes on time. IRS whistleblowers told Congress they recommended charging the president's son with six felonies, including tax evasion and filing false tax returns. The tax case against Biden is separate from a felony gun possession charge he is also facing. The felony gun charge was filed in court as part of a diversion agreement. Biden's lawyers and the special counsel's team disagree over whether it is valid. Former President Trump pleads not guilty for the fourth time in six months, this time in Georgia. The state's Republican governor splits with other Republicans and Trump on the issue. NTD's Melina Weiskup has more on this. Another not guilty plea from former President Trump, this time in Fulton County, Georgia, where the district attorney is using a state level crime that's normally used for mobs and gangs. She accuses Trump and 18 others of using illegal tactics and organizing an alternate slate of electors to cast ballots for former President Trump. When you uh, have that great freedom to challenge, you have to be able to, otherwise, you can have very dishonest elections. What has taken place here is a travesty of justice. We did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. And everybody knows it. I've never had such support. A Republican state senator called for a special session to investigate District Attorney Willis, but a Republican governor, Brian Kemp, poured cold water on this. Up to this point, I have not seen any evidence that D.A. Willis's actions or lack thereof warrant action by the prosecuting attorney oversight commission. Kemp and the Secretary of State maintain that the state's election results showing that President Biden won are accurate and lawful. This case against Trump is much different than the past three indictments. He was ordered to go to jail for the first time to surrender where his mugshot was taken and he was asked to pay a $200,000 cash bail for the first time in all three of these indictments. It's also unique in how many people it targets. In addition to Trump, there are 18 co-defendants of his, adding up to a total of 41 counts, 13 of which are directed at the former president. Trump is the fourth defendant in this case to plead not guilty. His lawyers have also filed to sever his case from other co-defendants, some of which are seeking a speedy trial. Trump was set to appear in court for that arraignment next Wednesday, where the judge did rule that cameras will be allowed, which would mark the first time that the former president's court appearance would have been televised. But since Trump already entered that not guilty plea, he will not appear in court 
court. He has waived his right to appear for that arraignment, marking the first time that the former president will not appear in court in any of these four indictments. Now what we're looking for next is when that trial date will be set, which ultimately is set by the judge. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Over at the Supreme Court, Justice Clarence Thomas explains why his billionaire friend provided private flights for official business. This comes in his first financial disclosure report since a key rule was changed. NTD's Arlene Richards has the details. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas recently released his financial disclosure report for 2022. His first report since the rules on reporting personal hospitality transportation changed. He says in the report that before March 2023, he didn't have to report personal hospitality. But on March 14, 2023, the Judicial Conference provided new guidance on the personal hospitality exemption to explicitly state for the first time that transportation that substitutes for commercial transportation will no longer be considered exempt from reporting under that provision. In an April 2023 report, nonprofit news outlet ProPublica reported that Thomas had taken numerous luxury trips paid for by billionaire Harlan Crow. Crow is a commercial real estate powerhouse known for his significant Republican donations. It accused Thomas of violating the rules on financial disclosure by failing to report the trips as gifts. The report triggered an investigation by Senate Democrats who successfully passed a bill on party lines to adopt the Supreme Court Code of Ethics. The court should have a code of conduct with clear and enforceable rules so both justices and the American people know when conduct crosses the line. The highest court in the land should not have the lowest ethical standards. Thomas explained in the report that prior to March 14, 2023, the then existing rules didn't require disclosure of personal hospitality travel. The report shows that Crow provided or paid for travel for three trips in 2022. For example, Thomas reported that he flew in a private plane to a Dallas conference in May 2022. He explained this was due to security concerns after a report of the Supreme Court's draft opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade was released. Crow paid for or provided Thomas's private jet travel and meals, the disclosure says. Thomas listed all of the trips under reimbursements with no reportable gifts. Thomas isn't the only Supreme Court justice flying for free. A 2019 Open Secrets report reveals that several other Supreme Court justices took trips paid for by a third party including retired Justice Stephen Breyer, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, Sonia Sotomayor, and Chief Justice John Roberts. Arlene Richards, NTD News. Is Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell okay to continue his duties? The Capitol attending physician is commenting after the senator appeared to freeze yesterday. The Capitol attending physician Brian Monahan said today that McConnell is medically clear to continue with his schedule as planned. This is after the doctor consulted with the Senate GOP leader and his neurology team. McConnell suffered a concussion and was hospitalized for it in March. His spokesperson said the recent incident was due to lightheadedness. The doctor said occasional lightheadedness is not uncommon in concussion recovery and can also be expected as a result of dehydration. A newly surfaced video online purports to show the Russian Wagner Group leader Evgeny Prigozhin days before his death. 
Prigozhin appeared to be in Africa, addressing speculation about his well-being. For those who are discussing whether I'm alive or not, how I'm doing right now, it's the weekend, second half of August, 2023. I'm in Africa. So for people who like to discuss wiping me out or my private life, how much I earn or whatever else, everything's okay. The short video was published by the Grey Zone Telegram channel, which is linked to the Wagner Group. His weekend reference implied the latest clip must have been made on August 19th or 20th. That's only three or four days before he and other top Wagner figures were reported dead in a plane crash outside of Moscow on August 23rd. Prigozhin and his Wagner group fought for Russia in the Ukraine war, but he was fiercely critical of the Russian defense establishment and led a brief mutiny in late June. At least 73 people died overnight when a fire tore through a derelict apartment block in South Africa. The building was occupied by homeless people. And just a warning, some viewers may find the following disturbing. Dozens have been killed and scores more wounded after flames engulfed a derelict building occupied by homeless people in South Africa's Johannesburg on Thursday. This disturbing Reuters footage shows bodies lying covered near the site of the blaze. First, I'm losing my, my sister. Three sisters already I'm lose. And also my thing, I didn't, I, I, any, any things I didn't bring from inside because that time I was already to protect my life. The actual fire escape, uh, escape was closed. So the uh, people, there was a lot of people, you know, a lot of people were small. People suffocated. A lot of people died because of the smoke because there was a lot of pressure at the gates. Some of the gates were closed. One distraught grieving woman was comforted as she cried on the street. Search and rescue efforts were ongoing, the city administration said on the platform X, formerly known as Twitter. We started evacuating the people who were inside the building uh, and also conducting our firefighting operations. Media said the fire engulfed a five-storey building that had been abandoned at one stage but where people had been living. It was not immediately clear what caused the fire. Coming up, former President Trump comments on a potential running mate, and dozens of conservative groups are working to lay the foundation for the next GOP president. Democratic candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. shares his plans for the country if he's elected president. We'll take you to the town hall when we return. Welcome back. Turning now to the 2024 election, former President Trump indicating he is open to bringing Vivek Ramaswamy on board as his future second-in-command. Meanwhile, a coalition of conservative organizations is preparing a new governing agenda for the next Republican administration. NTD's Sam Wong has the details. Who will be the future running mate for former President Trump? The GOP frontrunner himself seems to have an answer. When conservative talk show host Glenn Beck asked him about the idea of, quote, Vice President Ramaswamy, Trump responded. He's a very, very, uh, a very intelligent person. He's got good energy, and he, he could be in some form of something. I tell you, I think he'd be very good. But Trump also advised Ramaswamy. He's starting to get out there a little bit. He's a little bit getting a little bit controversial. I can tell him to be a little bit careful. 
As a political newcomer, Vivek Ramaswamy has come a long way over the course of six months. The 38-year-old biotech entrepreneur went from a largely unknown candidate all the way up to the top three leading GOP contender, polling right next to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. Ramaswamy has long been a fierce defender of Trump despite the mounting indictments filed against him in recent months. As GOP presidential hopefuls continue to gear up for the election, dozens of conservative groups are busy laying the foundation for their potential first or second term in the Oval Office. Washington think tank the Heritage Foundation is taking the lead in this effort, along with over 70 other conservative organizations. The initiative is called Project 2025. Its goal is to ensure a successful administration beginning in January next year. To achieve that end, the project will provide a comprehensive policy agenda, like-minded personnel, training, and a 180-day playbook. The Heritage Foundation is hoping that the next conservative president has the right guidance and manpower in hand to dismantle the administrative state and restore self-governance to the American people. Sam Wong, NTD News. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. hit New York City on the campaign trail. He shared his plans for America if he becomes the next president. Kennedy's Jason Perry attended the town hall in Brooklyn. Our future president of the United States of America, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Democratic presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. held a town hall event in Brooklyn, New York. There appeared to be a few hundred people in attendance. Because I'm running against the entire infrastructure, including the intelligence agencies, including big agriculture, including the big pharmaceutical companies and the medical companies. He also said he was planning to take on BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, three of the largest asset management firms in the world. Combined, they comprise the largest shareholder in 88% of companies in the S&P 500 and have the power to influence many markets. Kennedy also contrasted the average income with the average cost of living in the U.S. and said that many are going into debt to make up the difference. How do Americans handle that? They handle it by putting that $5,000 deficit on their credit cards. And the bank and the credit card company are charging them 22% interest. If the mafia did that, they'd call it loan sharking and they'd go to prison. But if the bankers and the credit card companies do it, it's just business as usual. And who do you think owns all those credit card companies and those banks? BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. He added this about the World Economic uh, Forum. The World Economic Forum has promised us, in their words, a great reset where we will own nothing but be happy. He countered this by saying he wants to help Americans own their own homes. And he explained how mortgage rates in the last two years have gone up from between 2 to 3% to over 7%, which is now at a 22-year high. He gave an example, saying if you have a rich uncle who co-signs the mortgage, you can get a lower rate. And Kennedy said this is what he's going to do if he's elected president. So I'm going to give every American a rich uncle. <laughs> is called Uncle Sam. <laughs> he's going to co-sign your mortgage and guarantee it at 3%, which will reduce the average mortgage in this country by $1,000 a month. And if you would like to watch the full event, you can visit NTD.com. Jason Perry, NTD News, New York. 
And for a deeper look at RFK Jr.'s campaign, priorities, and potential challengers, we speak with Epoch Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach, who has been following closely Kennedy's presidential run. Jeff Lauterbach, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. And you were just at one of RFK Jr.'s campaign events. What was your biggest takeaway from it? Well, what's interesting about it is he's been getting a big response to events that have been planned really within a day or two. Uh, I was in South Carolina last week covering his town hall tour. Just learned about this event in Brooklyn uh, a couple days ago. It was planned in a day and a half. And he had 800 people out there. And it, it runs the gamut from traditional Democrats to Trump supporters. It's, he has a wide spectrum of support. And zooming in on that, what was the crowd reaction like to him? I think you mentioned some traditional Democrats, but also some Trump supporters. Yeah, well, he since he announced his campaign back in April, he surprised a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle. He gets support from conservatives, libertarians, moderates, uh, traditional Democrats. He doesn't get many uh, progressives, but for pretty much everyone else he gets. And that was the crowd yesterday. And because of his platform being so wide ranging, uh, that's no surprise. And Jeff, what is RFK Jr.'s main message that he's trying to get out there? Well, he is running on a unity. He talks about healing the divide. He wants to return the Democratic Party to the way it was when his uncle JFK was president and his dad, uh, RFK Sr., was uh, running for president. He wants to return the Democratic Party to that. He thinks it's gotten way uh, to the left and he wants to appeal. He, I mean, he's a populist, he's a centrist. He, he wants to reach that crowd. And what I'm finding at these town halls is people on both sides of the political aisle are ready for that. And on that note, where do you see his sub main supporters or potential voters coming from? Where are those votes gonna be coming? Is it from the Biden camp? Is it from the Trump camp potentially? Well, when I was in South Carolina, I talked to a lot of people who worked on the Trump campaign as volunteers in 2016 and 2020 who are uh, supporting him now. Uh, South Carolina was easily won by Biden in 2020. I talked to a, a lot of Biden voters who are just fed up because, it, you know, this the, with the economy the way it is, it doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you're faced with the same challenges. and. And I think people are finding that uh, they like RFK. They like RFK's message of uh, restoring the middle class. That's another focus of his. And any hints of maybe other potential challengers? Is there Ga California Governor Gavin Newsom potentially entering the race? Well, that's uh, that's speculation, and I think it's credible because we all saw what happened with President Biden in Hawaii about. Uh, his responses there and then uh, falling asleep at, at an event and uh, people are questioning his age, his mental fitness. There's speculation that uh, Gavin Newsom might get in. He, what's interesting about him is he has said he's supporting President Biden, but uh, I've heard reports where he's having fundraising behind the scenes across the country. And that's something that uh, you wouldn't think would be done unless he's contemplating that. There also seems to be that potential debate with uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis between them. Um, but in terms of RFK Jr., what's next for him? Well, what I've seen 
is early on he was focusing on his message of unity, healing the divide, talking about how he wants to restore the middle class, uh, bring the Democratic Party back to the way it was when uh, back in the 60s and even the 70s. But now you're starting to see him introduce messages of what he will do. Like uh, at, the, at the Brooklyn Town Hall last night, he talked about how if elected, one of the, his, first thing, his first measures would be banning pharmaceutical advertising. And that is something that drew wide support. And then of course he has talked about 3% mortgages uh, and also limiting the ability for corporate corporations to own single family homes. So you're starting to see him introduce specific measures of what he'll do if elected. Jeff Lauterbach, thank you so much for those insights. Thank you. Coming up, billions of dollars in damages and hundreds of thousands without power as Hurricane Idalia leaves a trail of destruction. How long will it take to recover? More and more medical schools are abandoning one of the most prestigious ranking systems. Why? Because it doesn't use diversity and equity standards. An 11th bus of illegal immigrants from Texas arrives in L.A. The city now plans to pursue criminal charges against a Lone Star State and its governor. And Silicon Valley is home to major tech companies and unfortunately to plenty of illegal sideshows. Find out how one mayor is taking a new approach to deal with the issue when we come back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Former President Trump pleaded not guilty in Fulton County, Georgia, in the 2020 election case. He waived his right for a court appearance, meaning we won't see Trump in Georgia court for the arraignment next week. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas released his annual financial disclosure report. It reveals three private jet trips paid by his billionaire friend Harlan Crow. Thomas says he was concerned about safety after the Dobbs decision. President Biden approved major disaster declaration for Florida following Hurricane Dahlia. He said he will visit the Sunshine State on Saturday to view the damage. And to get a sense of Idalia's financial impact, we spoke with NTD Business's Don Ma. Don Ma, good to have you back with us. Yeah, great to be here as always. Don, a lot of eyes on Hurricane Idalia. It's left behind a trail of destruction. But what's the economic impact on businesses and people's livelihoods? How does the situation look? Right. So, Tiffany, the impact has been very overwhelming for some. Uh, according to some sources, 300,000 homes and businesses now are without power on the East Coast. And as in for damage, uh, in Florida, UBS Bank estimates average insured losses of over $9 billion, Tiffany. Several U.S. retailers, including Walmart and Target, closed their stores because of Adalia. About 80 Walmart and Sam's Club stores were closed in Florida and Georgia as well. Uh, this, this is according to Walmart's website as of yesterday. And on top of that, airlines in the United States canceled more than 1,000 flights as of Wednesday afternoon, while about 2,000 flights were delayed, Tiffany. 
Thanks a lot. And you mentioned Georgia. Georgia is a leader in terms of agricultural output in the U.S. What's the impact there? Yeah, very good question, Tiffany. Uh, the former administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, uh, pointed this out yesterday as well. He said that this is going to have a significant agricultural impact in southern Georgia. Um, that's for products like cotton, corn, soybeans, peanuts. And on top of that, a lot of the workers in those areas are going to be out of work. I actually have a quote from him from yesterday. Let's take a look at that. This isn't like, uh, you know, going down and it's a beach community and, and once you get things back up, tourists come back. You know, these impacts in the agriculture areas could be you've lost your crops for the year and it may take another year to get to your next crops. And so all the people that depend upon that, the jobs and businesses that depend upon that, uh, this could be a significant impact, not just from the initial storm. So on top of what he mentioned just now, there's also a lot of processing plants uh, in, in Georgia as well, like poultry processing and how badly they are impacted is going to affect the long-term recovery. And Don, help us put this into perspective when it comes to the economic impact of Idalia versus other hurricanes in the past. Sure. So Idalia's impact has been severe for sure for some, but it appears from early reports that it's been far less destructive than Hurricane Ian, which uh, struck Florida last uh, September. Uh, Ian was a cat Category 5 and caused $112 billion in damage. So. If Hurricane Dahlia is to cost insurers somewhere around $9 billion, it would not actually break into the top 10 of the costliest hurricanes to hit the U.S. But, you know, that being said, it seems like natural disasters like this are, are leading some insurance companies to pull out of Florida because of the risk of heavy losses. Wow. And Don Ma, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Tiffany. Some medical schools want to be ranked based on their diversity and equity measures. Brown Medical School is the latest one to stop participating in one of the most prestigious ranking systems because it doesn't use such metrics. Indy's Arian Pazdar has the details. The U.S. News and World Report ranking rates universities and colleges across the U.S. It has been described as the most influential ranking in the U.S., Brown University's medical school this week announced it will no longer participate in the ranking. That's due to concerns over diversity, equity and more. The school issued a letter this week saying a main reason they're withdrawing is the ranking's continued and significant emphasis on undergraduate GPAs and MCAT scores. Adding that we are dedicated to anti-racism and inclusiveness, diversity and equity. None of these can be adequately measured by a quantitative ranking scale. To analyze this reasoning, I spoke with Kevin Dyeratna. He's the chief statistician at the Heritage Foundation and focuses on health policy issues. But these are ethical and moral values. Are those things a ranking scale for medical schools to take into account? Well, it's a great question. Uh, the bottom line is, is that medicine is geared to help patients, not to take into consideration quotas about practitioners and so forth. So what should a ranking scale for medical schools take into account? Some sort of manifestation about the extent of the quality of care and the breadth of care that is being provided to patients. Brown is not the first university to abandon the U.S. news ranking system. Thirteen schools, including Harvard, Stanford and Columbia, have withdrawn since January. 
Dayaratna points to a bigger issue at play, a growing lack of doctors in the country. If medical schools keep increasing their focus on diversity, equity and similar things, how could that affect the pool of professional doctors in the future? Well, that's the thing. So the problem with this is, is that if the focus is on something other than treating patients and the focus should be on treating patients with the highest quality care and addressing the physician shortage, then medicine is not going to be as an attractive field to many people. He says forecasts estimate there will be a shortage of almost 150,000 doctors within the next 10 years. This is expected to especially affect the towns in the countryside. Arian Pastar, NTD News. Another bus carrying illegal immigrants arrives in Southern California while the Los Angeles City Council votes to pursue a criminal investigation of the Texas governor. Here's NTD's Christina Corona with the latest. The 11th bus carrying migrants from Texas arrived at Union Station Wednesday, marking the latest in a series of arrivals over the past two and a half months. At the same time, the Los Angeles City Council voted whether they can file a lawsuit against the state of Texas and Governor Greg Abbott. With unanimous support, the city council took a step ahead by approving a motion. The motion urges the city attorney's office to investigate whether the Texas governor committed any crimes when he bused migrants to L.A. back in June. Abbott claims his state is overwhelmed by an influx of illegal immigrants, citing the L.A. council's recent decision to declare L.A. a sanctuary city designation as a factor. Mayor Karen Bass said in a statement, We hear about the buses headed our way when they're on the way. We have no idea who's going to be on the bus, how many people it is, or what condition they're going to be in when they get here. She goes on to say, sometimes they haven't had any food, barely had enough water. As of today, Texas has sent a total of 11 buses to Los Angeles, containing 435 people since June 14th. Christina Corona, NTD News, Los Angeles. Should social media companies be morally responsible for the actions of users in their communities? A Silicon Valley mayor and law enforcement want to crack down on illegal sideshows in San Jose by teaming up with social media. NTD's David Lamb reports. We've heard of illegal sideshows taking up intersections with tires screeching, skid marks and smoke in the air. One Silicon Valley city has had enough and is asking to partner with social media companies. I absolutely think that our online platforms have a moral responsibility for, enforce, for supporting our laws and ensuring that we protect the community. That Footage from social media and the Citizen app shows clips of sideshows, often gaining many likes and reposts, leading to promotion of the activity. San Jose Mayor Matt Mahan said he sent a letter to tech companies asking them to talk to the police department and city staff in September. Uh, just this year, so far we responded to 184 sideshow events. Last year, we responded to over 200 uh, of those, uh, those events. The mayor's proposal, suspend accounts for 30 days if they post content with sideshow activity. If it continues, it'd be an indefinite suspension. A San Jose-born resident said that a sideshow happens here every weekend, and at one point, her son's car was stolen to be used at the sideshow. In this neighborhood, there's also a elementary school nearby. There's See. been an increase in the last year. 
She thinks the solution should be more than just social media. Actually, I think it would be more police, more um, engagement, to be honest with you, because we've had calls and sometimes they do show, sometimes they don't show. Sideshows hurt San Jose, and we all need to do our part to stop them, including the large social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Snapchat, all of whom we've reached out to. The mayor hopes to disincentivize people from engaging in illegal sideshows and says it's part of his goal for creating a safe city from every possible angle. In San Jose, California, David Lamb, NTD News. Coming up, five pro-life activists are facing prison. We hear from a lawyer in the case, what they're accused of, and how they plan to fight back. And young people say they prefer spending for fun over saving for retirement. Find out what advice an AI financial planner has for them when we come back. Welcome back. Five pro-life activists are looking at over a decade behind bars for a protest at an abortion clinic in Washington in 2020. To learn more about the case, we spoke with a lawyer with the group that's representing one of the demonstrators. Steve Crampton, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So it seems these five pro-life activists are facing up to 10 years. That's on the grounds of stopping women from entering an abortion clinic back in 2020. The Thomas More Society is representing one of the defendants. Tell us a bit more about this case. Sure. Uh, as you mentioned, first of all, by the way, they're, they're actually facing 11 years. One year for the actual underlying face uh, count, and then another 10 for the conspiracy against rights charge. Uh, but... The event occurred in October of 2020, uh, now three years past. It was live streamed on uh, Facebook. Uh, they made no secret of what they were doing, and the police responded within 15 to 20 minutes. What took longer to process the entire thing, which took, as it ended up, over three and a half hours, was because the FBI came and ended up directing the uh, operation. Well. The government nonetheless waited a year and a half to even file charges. Not coincidentally, in our view, that was only after the Dobbs case had been argued and the handwriting was on the wall that Roe v. Wade was going to be overturned. So it appears for all the world that this prosecution, like the other federal face prosecutions ongoing across the country, in which, by the way, I think we're involved in every one, are transparently efforts by the Department of Justice to target pro-lifers in the wake of the fall of Roe. And Steve, you mentioned the FACE Act, and it seems prosecutors are saying this is on the grounds of violence. So what is the FACE Act and how is it being applied here? Yeah, um, the FACE Act, it stands for the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act. It was enacted back in 1994 under the Clinton administration in response to the ongoing Operation Rescue Rescues, where they would blockade the clinics to shut down abortions. And so what the FACE Act does is it penalizes not only acts of violence, like force or threat of force, but also purely nonviolent, uh, peaceful sit-ins, such as physical obstruction. And while the government argued here 
that the defendants used force in addition to physical obstruction. The reality is these were a nonviolent group. The one thing they all agreed on, ironically, was not to use violence. What happened was clinic employees in their rush to try to uh, block folks from coming in the doors, they were the ones that instituted violence. One of them apparently twisted her ankle in the fracas, and that's the use of force that the government is now throwing against the defendants here. And on that note, critics are also saying that pro-abortion activists have committed violence in the past but don't seem to be punished to the same degree. Why do you think that is? It's exactly the case. In fact, we laid out in painstaking detail in one of the other face cases, case by case of over 200 attacks against churches, against uh, crisis pregnancy centers, and so forth, involving real acts of violence, which the Department of Justice and the FBI seems to have no interest in investigating. So it very much appears that we now have not the blind uh, lady justice that the images all portray that just equally applies the law on both sides, but rather a weaponized Department of Justice bent on pursuing and defending one particular political side of the equation and really uh, kind of crucifying the other side, namely the pro-life side. And in terms of this case, what is next in the defense? What are the next steps here? Actually, uh, you know, many times when the trial's over, you kind of breathe a little easier and can sit back. Not the case here. Because the defendants were immediately incarcerated here, we have filed, we believe uh, improperly, an emergency motion seeking to get them released pending sentencing. Meanwhile, while that motion is currently pending before the court, we expect a decision, frankly, any minute, we also have uh, what's called a Rule 29 motion for uh, a judgment of acquittal, notwithstanding what the jury did. Those motions are due in about a month. Then we'll have the sentencing, and we fully intend to pursue this case aggressively on appeal as well. So there's much work to be done. We're far from finished fighting for this one. It does seem there's a lot unfolding here. And Steve Crampton, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. The upcoming Labor Day weekend is a great time to travel, and a new survey says most young people want to spend money on life experiences, like traveling, instead of saving for retirement. NDD's Faye Quarter talks with a financial advisor, a psychologist, and the CEO of an AI financial advisory firm for their advice to those who prefer spending to saving. Most young people prefer spending on fun rather than saving for retirement. This according to a new survey of millennials and Gen Z. Instead of saving for when they're 80, they'd rather travel or go to that basketball game. Youth is wasted on the young. Wealth advisor Amy Colton says young people have many advantages because they're young such as the time value of money and compounding interest. I mean, we want to live our lives today and enjoy our lives today, but you can do it and still save money for the future. It's about budgeting. You factor those savings for vacation, for entertainment, all in your budget, and then it becomes a habit. Young people have more of a tendency to focus on the present instead of the long term, according to clinical psychologist Aura de los Santos. Our brain is divided into we have the logical part and we have the emotional part. And I think we are always in that situation where we have to choose short term or long term. De los Santos tells her clients to be realistic and to focus on their priorities 
An artificial intelligence financial advisor may make that easier. If our system surfaces a recommendation for you individually, it will also be able to explain why it's doing that. And you can ask it follow-up questions. It might throw out finance terms once in a while. You can ask for clarification. Alexander Harmson is the CEO of tech firm Global Predictions. Its flagship product, Portfolio Pilot, has integrated a chat GPT-like language model into its system. Harmson says this may make it more attractive to younger people. We have both the charts and numbers and tables and pie charts, breakdowns, and we have this AI assistant. This is actually the sort of the best of both worlds. Armson sees young people leaving human financial advisors because they're expensive. Portfolio Pilot costs a flat monthly fee of $29 and has received SEC approval as the first ever regulated AI financial advisor. Bay Quarter, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Good night.